Well, this morning is the third Sunday in Advent, and so we can we are continuing our look at some of the servant songs that are like, as as someone had said, probably somebody famous, and I'm another famous person. I'm forgetting, um, uh, who said that Isaiah is basically the fifth gospel. I mean, it's you get to the end of Isaiah, and it is just so rich, um, in in pointing forward to Christ and the work of the first coming and even the second coming. Uh, it's just unbelievably beautiful. And so we've been using some of these texts in this season of Advent to prepare us for the coming of our Lord, the celebration of his first coming and the anticipation of his second coming. So we've looked at Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, and today we slide over to Isaiah 50. Now you'll remember that even though we last week only preached on the first half of Isaiah 42, uh, and it was and it was magnificent and beautiful. The Lord is going to come. He's going to you know he, he's going to send his his elect one, his chosen one, to come and and bring this salvation. It's it's even going to be beyond uh, Israel. It's, it's, it's too little of a thing to redeem Israel. We're going to redeem the whole world. Uh, very good stuff. And it it ended with this call: Sing, O heavens, be joyful, all the earth, break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people. And will have mercy on the afflicted. And then it turns in verse 14, as the prophets do. Uh, um, it, it's usually it's this, this light and darkness, light and darkness, you know, joy and sorrow, a warning and promise. Um, and so, so just wow, you just this, you know, this hurrah, uh, call to singing and celebration. And then, but Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me. <laughs> it's just like, oh. You know, the excitement and then deflation. Um, but Zion has said, the Lord has forgotten me. And my Lord has, uh, uh, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. So, and, and again, we, if we, let's, let's always read the Bible in, in a context. It's very important. You, you don't just extract texts and start thinking about them. You got to remember the context of what's going on. Why would Israel say this? Well, because they're, they're about to go off into exile. Again, this is 700 years before the coming of Christ. And Israel is about to go off and be in exile for, for 490 years. This isn't going to be a little blip. You know, this, this, this is going to be a significant exile. And, and as time goes on, you can understand. I mean, the, the, the Isaiah is anticipating that cry of the people. That be, what a beautiful, oh my goodness, he's going to redeem Israel and he's going to redeem the world. How could you ever be down in the mouth, you know? Well, after 450 years of waiting and living under oppressive rule in some foreign country by a bunch of God-haters, you start to say, has the Lord, does he remember that he made these promises to us? You, you can understand that. If we're honest, I mean, if we're honest, sometimes as Christians we don't say these things because... Because it feels awkward to say. We better, better just to say the verse and know the Lord's going to deliver us and not deal with the fact. Yeah, but on the ground, sometimes it feels like you have been forsaken. It's been 2,000 years. Jesus said, hey, be ready. Keep your, keep your lamps lit. Have oil in those lamps because you never know when the bridegroom's going to come back. It's been 2,000 years. Now, he may come this afternoon. Praise God. That, you know, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But he may not. And it's in this waiting. This waiting, again, is not a flaw. It's a feature. 
You see it throughout the, you, you, you know, God brings Abraham into the land. He says, Abraham, good news. I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. Now, your descendants will have to go into slavery for 400 years in Egypt, you know, and they're going to live in a foreign land for a while. But, but I am going to give this land to you, <laughs> you know. And David, David, you're my anointed. You're going to be king. But he's got to wander around in the, in the wilderness for years with Saul trying to kill him before he eventually becomes the king. The pattern is there, but we have to deal with it that in the waiting, it can sometimes feel like you've been forsaken, like God perhaps has forgotten, especially when you see the wicked prospering. It just, it seems like you were tracking with the story here. You were following the narrative. And then all of a sudden this odd chapter popped into the story that does not fit the narrative. And you're like, what's going on? So the prophet is anticipating that cry. And it's not, it, 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 it's like a neck snapper for us because like, wait, we were just cheering. What do you mean he's forsaken you? Didn't you just hear that? But again, remember the context of what we're reading. Israel's getting these words as they're about to be dragged out into exile for centuries, okay? Which brings us then to 50. Because they're complaining, they're complaining now that the dialogue is all condensed. All this time is condensed. And they're complaining about the Lord letting this happen and the Lord casting us off. So in chapter 50, it begins with the Lord now speaking to Israel. Hey, oh, you think I've cast you off? Hey, just go get your mother's certificate of divorce and bring it out here. Just bring out the paperwork where I where I divorced her. Show me. You, you say... You say that, our, I mean, this is God arguing with his people. Think about that. <laughs> you, you say that I divorced your mother. He's talking to his children here in, uh, in Israel. You say I divorced your mom? Just go have your mom bring out the certificate and show where it says that I divorced her, where I cast her off. No, that's not what happened. He's telling the kids. You know what happened? Is your mother sold herself off. Now, now in, in other places, if you go to like uh, Hosea and so forth, I mean, it, it gets pretty graphic, right? This idea that she became a prostitute, essentially. You, you gave your, you sold yourself to other lovers. You gave yourself to other gods. That is why you're in this mess. Not because I said, you know what? I'm tired of you. That's what Israel's saying. I, you, you have cast our mother off. You, you've cast us off, right? It's like we, we are part of the mother, but none of us individually is the mother. It's like we're the bride of Christ, but I'm not the bride of Christ. So you can hear God talking about the bride of Christ to me and asking me to go ask my mother. It'd be that kind of thing, right? He's, he's speaking to the Israelites about them, but they're not the institution. And they're saying, hey, you, you've cast Israel off. No, I have not cast Israel off. Israel has pursued other lovers, and there are consequences to that. But no, I didn't come and say, you know what? I'm, this relationship isn't working for me anymore. Here's the certificate of divorce. I want out. So where is that? Where, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? You know, that I, 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 had, to, I had to sell you off because I, I couldn't afford you anymore. No, for your iniquities, you have sold yourselves. This is the story of a bride who wanted other lovers and went after them and found that they were toxic, found that it was destructive. 
they 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 did now from the male perspective they they did hear from a female version of a woman going after other men what Solomon warns his son not to do from the male perspective son when you see this woman of seduction sitting outside the house wooing you to come in here don't go in there it's a house of death and here from the female perspective now Israel has done this she has gone after the gods of the other nations she has wanted to be like the other nations and she's going to get her wish now now she gets to go be with those that she has pursued and she will find out just like uh, God told Israel when they wanted a king like the other nations it's not going to work the way you think it's going to work but here you go and gave them what they wanted so Israel has sold herself off For your transgressions, your mother has been put away. Why then, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? I'm I'm coming. Nobody has an answer. Nobody can speak up. Nobody can say anything about this. But then he, but then he responds. Is my hand, and, and this is gonna go, we're gonna go back to 49 here in a second. Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or do I have no power to deliver? Even now, as your mother is being selling herself off into this house of prostitution and off into the, 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 the enslavement that that brings, even as that is happening, do you think I can't fix this? Do you think my arm is too short to reach all the way out to Babylon and get her back? You think I don't have the money to go purchase her from her slavery? In the text, again, that we didn't look at last week, but I did refer to it last week uh, in, in that verse 14 of chapter 49. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And then he asks this awesome and unbelievable question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That's his response to that. They say the Lord has forgotten me. He says, hold on, do you think a, do you think a mother could forget the child that she's nursing? And the answer, the answer is no way, but maybe so. It would be incredible if a mother forgot her nursing child, even if that were possible. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may. There was, there was a, you know, ancient, a boy, you leave your baby on the hillside, you know, or, or look, look, sadly, uh, some people have children and, and it's, it's, they do forget about him. It's just not a priority. It's it's disturbing. It's troubling. It's certainly overwhelming minority. But he's saying that even that may be possible. Yet I will not forget you. So this is him asking that question again. Do you think do you think my memory is so bad that I would forget my my son or that I would forget my bride? Do you think my arm is too short that it can't uh, redeem? That I don't have the power to deliver. And then he just these demonstrations of, of his. No, I, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. Remember, the sea is, the sea in the Bible, again, is a symbol for the nations. And usually the raging of the nations, right? The stormy, the stormy sea, the billows washing over us. He, hey, listen, you think Babylon's a problem? With a word. I mean, and doesn't Jesus do this with the, and this is part of what's going on, actually, when Jesus calms the sea at the storm with the disciples. It's not just Jesus got caught off guard and they found themselves in a storm and he had to bail them all out. Jesus led them into that storm. It says, Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go. And then he falls asleep 
the storm comes up and they're all shaken. And this is a very apropos thing Jesus is doing because they are all about to find themselves in the storming of the sea on a much greater level when the Romans and Jews are clamoring and crucifying. You can hear almost that stormy sea that they're going to find themselves in much scarier than what they're in now. But they got to remember who's with them, the one who with a word can say peace. And You think you think I can't solve this? I can't fix this? With a word. I rebuke and the seas dry up. I can make the rivers a wilderness and make the fish all rot because there's no water. I can clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Oh, I can I can bring sorrow, I can bring repentance, I can bring deliverance. Then in verse 4, the servant speaks. And of course, this is the one now who is going to come and accomplish this buying back. When you see Jesus born in a manger, when you see Jesus baptized by John, when you see Jesus crucified on the cross, you're seeing the arm of the Lord not being too short. There it is, reaching that far. This is how far our God can come. And the hymn, a hymn I've never sung before, you know, who is this doing this? Who is that doing this? Oh, it's, it's our God. Yeah, his arm is not so short. He sends his servant, and it turns out he is the servant. And so now the servant speaks. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. So let's just, I want us to consider three things here about the servant of the Lord that is going to be the arm of the Lord to bring his bride back and redeem her, as he says he will do in Hosea. He's going to do it through his servant, the bridegroom, right? He's going to come and win his bride back. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it by having the ear of the scholar, the ear of the disciple, the ear of the student, now, this is going to be important for us because this is what he does for us. So on the one hand, we're going to have Jesus in the picture of this Old Testament servant held up here as a model, and we're just going to look at him and see what he did to redeem us because we're the, again, we have to read this as we are the adulterous bride. We are the one cast off here. And here comes the bridegroom to redeem us. At the same time, having been redeemed, our bridegroom becomes the model for us now. How do we, how are we sustained in the midst of our waiting? And it's going to be by walking in the steps of our bridegroom. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, so, so what do we see in him? What does he do to redeem us? He learns. He devotes himself. Now, this is weird for us to think because we know Jesus is God. So we're like, he didn't have to study. Yes, he did have to study. He came as man, true man. To know what the Bible said, he needed to study. And he did. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear. He attunes himself to the word of God. We know this because when Jesus is a boy, 
he's found in the temple teaching the teachers. And again, we can easily say, well, he's God. He's just telling them what he wrote this stuff after all. No, no, no. That's, that's a confusion of categories. This is a 14-year-old boy who has been eating and drinking the word of God so deeply and granted with an unfallen mind, right? He's unlike you and I, where we're tainted and broken down by sin. His mind is just able to receive and process and see. But nonetheless, he has the ear of a student. And brothers and sisters, for you and I to be sustained in this, we need to follow the bridegroom. This is one reason we're here. We need to come here today, myself included, to hear, to attend to the word of God, to listen to him because there is a cacophony of voices out here summoning you. That little gizmo in your phone, in your pocket, is summoning you, summoning you. Listen, look over here, look over here, listen over here. Check this out. Every, I mean, around us are voices. Even if you don't have a phone in your pocket, I have to say that for Mark Dobson because he doesn't have the phone in his pocket. So to guard against the Pharisaism of no phonism, I have to say there are other, <laughs> there are other voices. Okay, everywhere around us, we 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 are living in a we're we're living in a world saturated with messaging. Everything's messaging, and. Our ears just naturally go there, like those frequencies we tune into very naturally. The word of God we do not tune into naturally. And so we need to be like the servant who has the ear of the disciple who can read and have it open that he might understand the ways of his father. So the first thing we learn about the servant who's going to come as the arm of the Lord to redeem his bride is that he attunes himself to the word of God. And then secondly, he is obedient to it. It's not just that he hears it. You know, James says, what good is it if we hear but don't do? But this is not how the servant was or will be. The Lord God, verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. Nor did I turn away. Now notice he's doing the very thing that the bride failed to do. The bride would not attune to the word of God. The bride, the prophet, prophet after prophet after prophet came to her. Calling her back to faithfulness, she would not listen, and judgment came. But the bridegroom, who's going to come now and rescue the bride, he hears and he does not ignore it. The Lord opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And notice in verse 6, and here we see now, these are where these pictures start to really resonate with the servant as we see his face and know his name now. As Jesus, because this obedience was not just, okay, yes, I kept the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's great, and he did. But this came at a great cost. To, to win this bride back is going to come at a great cost. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This isn't, this isn't again, he was just a good boy. It was that he did what needed. He listened to his father as to what needed to be done to win back the bride. And he said, yes, father, thy will be done. And whatever that meant, if that meant taking the lashing on the back, he took it. If it meant sweating drops of blood, he took it. If it meant having his beard plucked out, he took it. 
because he trusted the word of his father. He listened and he obeyed. And the obedience comes from listening, but it really comes from what we get in verse 7 through 9. And this brings us back to our assurance of pardon. Notice in verse 7 begins with four, meaning, so I was obedient. And you know why? Because, here's why, my confidence is in the Lord. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. I mean, the 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 servant here, the bridegroom, is, I mean, everything's falling apart. Now, remember, be, be Jesus, and don't just import his deity into what's going on at Golgotha as he's being slapped, spit on, mocked, beard plucked out, whipped, crown of thorns jammed on his head, you know, accused by everyone of being guilty, the crowds crying out, crucify him, your disciples all abandon you. You're carrying the, the cross up to Golgotha where they nail you on it and crucify you in the midst of two of, of, of two brigands. Now, you tell me you're not going to be like Israel and say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he says that, but as we said last week, he doesn't end there. He says that to pull in even Israel's cry and then push it through. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I trust you. I trust you have not forsaken me. But again, there he is in the depths, if you will, of Israel's despair. But why is he doing it? Again, this gets us the, notice in verse 7, for, therefore, therefore. I mean, he's the servant here is making like this logical link about how he can do this because it sounds bad, but we know the fulfillment. It's even worse than it sounds. Here's why I obeyed, for I know the Lord will help me. My father, his I know, his arm is not so short that he cannot save, even if I die. Right? It's like, it's like Abraham, who when he took Isaac, and we always wonder, how could you do that, Abraham? How could you, what was, how could you go through with it? Not like, how, how dare you, sir? How could you? Not, I don't mean that, how could you? I mean, like, how did you have the fortitude? And the author of Hebrews gives us what we don't see in Genesis. He says, Abraham did this by faith, knowing that if need be, God could raise him from the dead. Like, even, even, God's arm is not so short that it can't save through death. And so the son, the servant, the bridegroom knows this. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I know I will not be disgraced. Not be disgraced. Slapped, spit, beard plucked out, mocked, crucified, condemned. And yet he looks at all that and he goes, yeah, but in all that, I'm not going to be disgraced. There was like a confidence that pushes right through that. It's the confidence of Romans 8. As we're going to say, we look at the bridegroom and we learn how we ought to be. We need to be servants. We need to obey. And our obedience needs to be based on this kind of confidence. A confidence not rooted in ourselves, but rooted in the promises of God. In all this, I'm not going to be disgraced. Therefore, I will set my face like a flint. It's like he, and we have that in the reading today. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. Like, let's go. Now he, he tells his disciples, my soul is troubled. 
He's going to be sweating drops of blood. Again, we got to, we don't want to dehumanize Jesus. He's a true man who has to set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing what's in store, but he does it unflinchingly because he knows he will not be disgraced. He will not be ashamed. The Lord is going to have his back. His father's going to have his back. Whatever happens, he will be vindicated. And so verse 8, the the words that resonate with us from Romans 8, our assurance of pardon today. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? (laughs) Let us stand together. Let us say it to my face. Come stand in front of me and contend with me. Who's going to contend? Who's going to disgrace me? Come stand and do it. The floor is yours. He, He throws the challenge out there. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, all will grow old like a garment and the moth will eat them up. Pontius Pilate will rot in the grave, but I will be raised. I will endure. The Father will not forsake me. So the supreme confidence, which now brings us to us, because then in verses 10 and 11, now the challenge comes to us. Now, boys and girls, you have a decision to make. Okay, you have a decision to make. Choose you this day who you will serve. Choose you this day who you will trust. Choose you this day whose voice you will listen to. And he gives you two options here. In verse 10, and hint, verse 10 is the one you want, okay? Um, This is like helping your students pass a test. It's like, this is going to be on the test. You want to be verse 10. Who uh, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Do you feel forsaken? Right? Do you feel forsaken? Are you walking in darkness and you can't see any light? Well, here's, given what was just said to you about the arm of the Lord, given what was just said to you about the bridegroom who comes obediently willing to rescue his bride with supreme confidence in, in, in the deliverance of God, look at him, you who have no light, and trust in him. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon your God. That is to say, that Romans 8 business where Paul is saying, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is there who can separate us? Who can stand against us? That's Paul doing this. That's Paul living in and out of the life of the bridegroom. That's not Paul just being macho. That's Paul doing this. having And and do you think Paul was disgraced? On a human level, absolutely. Whipped mercilessly five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned and left for dead, imprisoned multiple times. Even in his own churches, we're reading Corinthians. He, he leaves and they turn on him. But Paul, Paul feels no disgrace in this. Paul's confidence is in the Lord, and hence he can say these amazing things of Romans 8. So here's your two options. Do you fear the Lord? Let the answer be yes. Do you obey the voice of his servant? Are you looking and having this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus? Let the answer be yes. Do you walk in darkness as he did? Do you walk in the valley of the shadow of death and have no light? Trust in the Lord. You will not regret it. You will not be put to shame. However, verse 11, here's the other option. 
Look, all you who kindle a fire, right? You're in the dark. So here's what you'll do. You're, you're feeling the darkness. So what you do is you try to solve it. You create your own light. This is very, this is very uh, 21st century American. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with the sparks. You know what? Walk in the light of your own fire and in the sparks you have kindled. Then you shall have, uh, then this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. I mean, this whole passage is unbelievably encouraging until that, that, but, but he, he, he lays it out to you. You got two options. Look, we're all dwelling in darkness. That's this advent longing. So you've got two options. Look to the light of the Lord. He is the light of the world. And in him then be the light of the world. Or kindle your own fire. Make your own meaning. Sit around your own little world and, and warm yourself in the sparks of that fire. It's, it's, it's what the Lord says to Israel in Jeremiah 2 when he says, I have, my, my people have committed two grievous sins. They have rejected me, the fountain of living water. It's like now here, different metaphor. It'd be like saying, you've rejected me, the source of light. You could have just had light, but you rejected that. And instead, now back to the water in Jeremiah 2. You, the two great sins my people have committed. They've rejected me, the fountain of living water. And they have secondly carved out for themselves cisterns which can hold no water. So they want the water without the fountain. They just want to have their own water. They don't want me, the fountain of living water. They just want water. Problem is they have cisterns that can't hold water. But that's what they've chosen. And it's a great evil. And here he's saying the same thing. You've got two options here. You can run to the fountain of life. Or you can have a broken cistern and see how that does for you. You can have the source of light. Or you can decide instead to try to fix this yourself and kindle a little fire and light yourself by the sparks that are coming off of it. But be warned. The light leads to life. The fountain of living water is a water of life. And the broken cistern can hold no water. And this little stinky fire you've built will not sustain. And indeed, the Lord says, you will lie down in torment. It will not, it will not give you the light you desire. So there's the, there is the trouble, the exile, the servant, the solution, and then the challenge to us. I love this text because it lays it back before us. Hey, choose you this day who you will serve. And brothers and sisters, may it be true of us that we look to our bridegroom who has come and done for his bride what she failed to do herself, went down into her slavery, Endured it right to the bitter end with utter and supreme confidence, knowing that he would not be forsaken and was vindicated in the resurrection. And as Mark prayed in his opening prayer, thanking God that we're on this side of the resurrection, again, we of all people have no excuse, for we have seen the vindication of the bridegroom. How can, how, how can we trust anything or anyone else than him? Put yourself in his camp. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we walk in darkness. And while it may not be right now, although it may be for some, we at times feel forsaken. We, we can understand that cry. Well, we live in a world that's in the valley of the shadow of death. It's a, it's a place of tears. It's a, it's a place of, of funerals. And yet, Lord, in this darkness, you have sent the light of the world. 
that obedient, humble light that took the form of a servant and the ear of a disciple who learned of you for us so that we through him might be righteous, that we through him might have supreme confidence, confidence which we are not owed in and of ourselves, but confidence which we have because of his work. Help us then to stand in that confidence Guard us from making our own little fires and thinking somehow we can have light on our own. Father, bless us with these words. Let them settle into our hearts today and bear fruit in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.